Okay. Good, good evening, everybody. Good evening. Thank you so much for coming out so late. Unbelievable. Um, I wanted to uh, just sort of uh, recap uh, when Rishari asked me to... Uh, originally, I was going to do four separate topics. And Rishari said, no, it's, it's always best to do some kind of series and keep everything connected. So, if the shear goes past ten, I think we can have Mara here. We'll try to avoid that. We'll try to avoid that. Don't worry. Um, you keep me honest. All right. So, we started to discuss the topic. The overall topic that we're discussing is this: uh, what I call the delicate balance between hishtadlos uh, and bitacha. And last week we gave sort of an overview, a almost historical, uh, but certainly a varied overview of what is a very complicated topic and a very, very serious hashkafic issue that um, also translates to a, um, a significant number of nafkaminas, halachic nafkaminas actually. And uh, I personally got into this very much uh, as a consequence of having the schus of interacting with many young men and women who are at that formative time of their lives when they're making very big decisions. Very big decisions on the critical factors of life, right? Us old seasoned people, you know, it's a piece of cake. But they see in front of them major decisions in terms of parnasa, shiduchim, and in other areas where it gets involved in this discussion. So last week, we kind of just gave an overview of the shittos that exist out there, uh, both in previous generations as well up to the present time, as to how to uh, really understand this concept called bitachon. Bitachon means having trust, having faith, having faith in Hashem to, to take care of things. So we started off with what is uh, the most extreme view, I'll call it. Obviously my bias is being revealed here. I I feel this is a radical and extreme view, and uh, I'm sort of distant from it. What's that view? This is the view of many, many chashev achronim, who uh, I have no place arguing with them. But Baruch Hashem, I have other achronim to rely on to do that. But what do these achronim say? And, And I'm referring to the Maharal, and the Nefesh HaChayim, and the Chafetz Chaim, and we'll see Rav Dessler, and Rav Asher Weiss. All of these individuals understood Bitachon in the most, what I would call, extreme way, which means it's guaranteed to be effective. Having Bitachon, having it is a tremendous mila in a person. It's something that's laudatory. If the, the greater the degree of Bitachon you have, trust and faith you have, the greater a person you are, and it guarantees success. And where, where I really call it extreme is what the Chavetz Chaim uh, said very explicitly, even in a person who's not such a great person, meaning they're, they're not in other areas of, of Jewish life, they're, they're not so fine, even they, if they have bitachon, will see the, the fruits of that bitachon, they'll be successful. So, what, what does this group say if things don't turn out well? 
Yeah, sometimes I, I think I have bitachon and the ending is not, unfortunately, always good. Well, clearly there was a chisaron in the bitachon. You didn't have enough bitachon. That would be the way it's understood. The next group that we looked at were the Rishonim. This is really the prevalent view amongst the Rishonim, the Ramban, the, the Rashba, Talmidei HaRashba, Talmidei HaRamban. That group, and the Chovas Levavos is in this group too, they were also looking at Bitochon as something that guaranteed success. So in that sense, they had a commonality, a common uh, ground with the first group, but a big difference. Uh, Adam She'eno Hagun would not have this ability to use bitachon to his advantage. What is bitachon? Bitachon means uh, trust and confidence that everything's going to turn out okay. Join the meeting. It's hope. Okay, it's trust it's more than hope. Because the word batuach means to be sure. Right, so if you have uh, sure, surety in terms of confidence and trust in the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu runs the world and he's going to make everything turn out okay, that's the ultimate in Bitochah. So that's Bitochah, you can be sure. Yes, just like that. Right, exactly. So the Rishonim, they throw in one little extra that puts them into a separate category, which is, it depends on Zechuyos. They agree that Bitochah is a tremendously powerful trust and Bitochah is a tremendously powerful tool for a Jew to use, but it's only going to work said the Ramban and the others, if you are a good person, if you have the schuyo to empower the bitacha. So, even though they did modify that, the view to that degree... The one says that, like I thought, according to the Kavis of the you think it'll turn out okay, he's telling you, by having bitacha, you may realize what you originally thought should be, it'll turn out okay, it's not, you know, Hashem has different ways of thinking about this and you're planning. Right. So it will be okay, but like I said, just, I can have a duck. There are two, many million that are in Powerball right now. Big duck, I can have a duck. Okay? And it might, you might not win. And I might not win. Right. So you got to be careful. Right. <laughs> if you don't win, it'll be because you're be, either, according to the achronim I mentioned, you're not winning because there is an insufficiency to your bitachon. Uh, and, and you'll elaborate on this more, we'll see. According to the Rishonim, you might not have enough sechuyos, chas for shalom. I'm not, I, I don't know you well enough to say that. Right, right. Either way, what I, think, what I think is a little troublesome to you, is a troublesome to me, is this idea that bitachon guarantees success altogether. So, how could it be? So, I then showed you Rav Nevensel. Rav Nevensel puts a perspective on this that I think is very, very helpful. Very much uh, appeals to like the Western biased mind like myself. Right? What did Rav Nevensel say? Rav Nevensel said, and he used the example of right before Kriyas Yamsuf, when the, when the people are getting very nervous, and they don't know what they're going to do. They have the Mitzrayim behind them. They have Yamsuf in front of them. Wild uh, desert beasts on the right and the left. What are we going to do? They're screaming. And Moshe says, take it easy. Everything will be okay. Have some bitachon. Right? So, remember, so I asked the question that I was, you know, many of us are thinking. How could Moshe say that? They have plenty to be afraid of. There's plenty good reason for a rational mind to not feel everything's okay and just take it easy. How could Moshe say such a thing? So he said, well, because there was a haftacha. There was a promise made by Hashem 
that things would be okay. And it's on the basis of that that the notion that bitachon is a guaranteed uh, success ingredient is based. And then Rav Nantel added, aside from a direct promise from a Navi or from Hashem, the other thing is if you know you're a great tzaddik, if you're mamish, a tremendous, tremendous tzaddik, then you could also potentially rely on this. And you can rely just on the bitachon alone. Right. Once Rav Nevinsel... What? Yes, exactly. So it works for Moshe, and it works when Hashem promises Moshe, things are going to be fine. Right? And every other story in Tanakh, when we see bitachon is so lauded, and it's so much related, says Rav Nevensal. It's not me talking, this is Rav Nevensal uh, de- demonstrating that it relates to that. And Why do you have to define success by our interpretation of achieving what we want, but not what we want? Right, so that's also a very classic response. Because he had, he had a bigger fish to fry. But I'm gonna, let me give you the rest of Rav Nevinsal. So he then added, he said, what to me would have been the natural conclusion is, in contemporary times, when we don't have such haftachos, we don't have these promises. We don't have Nevi'im, unfortunately. We don't have anyone coming down in Hashemayim and promising me things will work out okay. And two, says Rav Nevinsal, we might not all be tzaddikim on the level of Moshe Rabbeinu or of other great people he says, nowadays, Zahirus, now we have to be Bishtadel more. Now, the Bitachon is going to be working differently. Bitachon is going to be understood differently. It's going to take on a new perspective, says Rav Nevinsal. What's the new perspective? So then we brought in, well, we'll be not exactly uh, the same, and I'm going to demonstrate how these two opinions are really very different. The Chazonish and Rav Schwab. The Chazanish comes in and he's one of the most famous for his contemporizing the notion of bitachon. He's a very different understanding of bitachon than the classic Rishonim and other Achronim. Says the Chazanish, he starts off, you know, it's a very famous sefer called the Muno Bitachon. And he starts it off by saying, you know, there's a big mistake out there. People think that bitachon means that everything, you have to believe that everything is going to turn out great. You're going to win the lottery, you're going to win it. Right? You have to believe that. And if you do, you, it's going to happen. If you do it with enough conviction. So, says the Chazanish, that's a, that's a total fallacy. That's not what Bitochon is. Certainly not Bismaneinu. He didn't comment on what Rav Nevensol was talking about in the old days. But, says Rav, Rav, the Chazanish, for today, he says, Bitochon means something different. It means Hashkocha. It means that you have to have, and what's laudatory is for you to realize that everything that happens is Behashkocha. Everything that happens is under the control of Akadosh Baruch. Now, what does that mean? So, the ramifications of that, I, uh, just to begin with, are two main things. Number one, it is a, has a calming effect on many people, right? The, life is not Hefkerus, life is not random, life is not so horribly dangerous as is the connotation of a randomness. Right? If, if life worked that way, I would have tremendous anxiety constantly. Oh, it's nothing, there's nothing mesudar, there's nothing under control. Says, says the Chazanish, you have to understand, no, everything is bahashkacha. It doesn't mean things on the ground will come out looking good. Right? And this is where perspective, Henry, this is where perspective comes in. Says the Chazanish, you know, this perspective on what's good and what's bad, this Hashem's perspective, that's not necessarily ours. 
And I think that's what you were getting at. And that's exactly what the Chazanish alludes to. He says that, don't worry about it. What you have to realize is it's under God's control. Now make the most of your nisyonos. Do what you can. Now, I got excited when I first read this Chazanish. I said, he's going to say what I want to hear, which he didn't quite say. Because you'll see, and we're going to really, next week is when I'm going to hone in on this issue, when I talk about Parnassa a lot more. But the Chazanish says, by the way... So you get the idea that I'm promoting hishtadlus. I'm promoting the idea that we have to make efforts. We can't just have bitachon and sit back. Now we've got to do things. So I was thinking he, was, he meant in the Gashmiya sense, in a material sense, we're going to go up and actively do things. Says the Chazanish, no, really, that's not, where the, uh, that's not where the money is. The money is in the Ruchniya. Since everything is under God's control, the only way you're going to get anything done is through davening, through doing mitzvos, through the Ruchniya's realm. So that puts a little damper on my, my personal biases. Then comes along Rav Schwab. And Rav Schwab just, and it's not surprising, someone raised in Torim Darcharetz and the Hersheyan kind of uh, philosophy of Rav Schwab. Of, of, of course, he's much more complex than that, but, but not for now. So what does he say? He says, just like the Chazanish, he also understands Bitochon as a faith that God runs the world and everything's Bashkacha, but he says, and therefore, Hishtadlus, you have to be actively involved and pursuing in a material way success, just like everyone else. He even says those words, just like everybody else does. You got to make your efforts. Right? So that was uh, already now, something's going on there in this machlokis. I view it as a machlokis between the Chazanish and um, Rav Schwab that I think is going to come out much more sort of dramatically next week. Next week I'm going to focus on a nafkamina that relates to that debate. A nafkamina of how much, I'll, I'll give the, the preview, how much effort do we have to put into our parnasa, which has multifaceted uh, kind of connections. And this is one of the most common questions I get from guys hot out of yeshiva, hot out of yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael. You know, a guy's been through two years, and he's been spiritualized, Baruch Hashem, it's a good thing, don't, don't get my tone in the wrong way, and, and now he wants to know, alright, so what am I going to do with my life? Right? In, in, in my day, we were thinking about this in high school, I don't know about the rest of you, we were thinking about what we're going to do with our lives much sooner than they do nowadays. That, so I don't know, that's, whatever, it's, it just always amazes me when I talk to these guys, and 9 out of 10 have no clue what they're interested in doing, or whatever, which I guess is healthy while you're in yeshiva, I don't really want them like worrying about these things, I want them learning, right? which is a good thing. But, after they're finished with Shana Bet, and then I get the phone call, right? and, and they're worried about, you know, how much energy, time, and effort should I put in towards a parnasa, and towards a potential avenue of contribution to society and to, to the world, right? versus minimize that effort, minimize my education, i.e. for a large part, and, and focus on learning as much as possible. So that's like really next week. That's a, it's in some circles a very controversial topic, not here of course, and um, we'll get to that. We mentioned one last recap from last week, what I, what I called my favorite take on Bitochan, and this is the take of the Kad Kamach, which is also Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, Zatzal, unbelievable, unbelievable take. He says like this, he says, Bitochan really means the following. What Bitochan means is that we have trust and faith in Hashem, 
And to the degree that that's all that matters is not the outcome of anything. I'm not worried about what the outcome is going to be. The outcome is going to be whatever it is based on my efforts and based on Ratzon Hashem. Right? It's going to be that kind of partnership. That's what's going to be. And that has nothing to do with Bitachon. Bitachon means is I want to be on Hashem's team. I want to be with Hashem. That's what I really want. Ad Kidei Mesiris Nefesh. That's, that's what the Kandah Kemach brings in. He says, up to the degree that I'm willing to give my life for God. That's just because God's, God has it. The Torah is the way to live. The Torah is MS. All of that is what drives me. Whether there's a good outcome or a bad outcome, incidental almost. Because my bitachon drives me to connect and commit to HaKadosh Baruch Okay, so that's a basic overview of, of the background to bitachon and the various takes. Today I want to do the first nafgamina. There's going to be three nafgaminas. One is in the realm of tefillah. That's what I'm going to be focused on today. And in particular, you'll see where I'm going to go with this. Tefillah for a miracle versus tefillah not for a miracle. And um, next week, Parnasa, And the following week, Shaduchim. Shaduchim is also another thing, right? It handles all the areas that I've found that, again, young people in the formative time of their life, when they're making these big decisions, all of this comes into... How much, how much uh, effort, do, how much ishtadlis do I need for a shidduch? Maybe I should just, it's Hashem is making the shidduch anyway. Let me just sit back and it'll come to me. Right? Not so simple. Not so simple. So we'll talk more about that and its various manifestations. But today I want to just discuss now something else. Something that is really, really uh, an, an issue that bothered me tremendously. And it really came to the fore with a, an event that happened. I'm going to tell you this story. It's a totally true story. Uh, I've mentioned the names before. I'm going to mention the names again because they impact on the story. And it, it gets to the heart of this issue of davening, davening for a miracle. And, and the reason I'm throwing davening as a topic unto itself is this is another very frequently asked question, number one, that I get from Talmidim all the time. In, in this area, girls seem so much more grounded and strong. Guys, including myself, have tremendous challenge by tefillah on, on exactly understanding what is it, how do I get into it, right? The, what does it mean, what, what am I allowed to ask, What's not, what am I not allowed to ask? So, starting with that last part of it, and, but all of it should be answered by this discussion. In Christianity and Islam, it is absolutely encouraged to pray for miracles. Right? Without going into too much, we don't even have enough time for all the Torah. I don't want to go into the theology of Christianity and Islam. But um, they, they push it. They think that you, know, you, you should be asking for all the miraculous things in the world. We say no. We say it's ill-advised. And in fact, we're going to see, we paskin, it's usr. It's usr to pray for a miracle. So now, I, I remember learning, there's a famous Gemara that we're going to look at in a minute, Gemara and Brachos, that discusses this. But where it really hit home for me was, there was unfortunately a young man from uh, Yeshiva University who was very, very ill. And he was hospitalized at, uh, at Columbia, where I happened to be working at that time. And simultaneously, I was, I was teaching at that time in MTA. And... Uh, I went up with one of the other rabbis from MTA, Rabbi Gary Beitler, many of you might know him, and we went to visit this boy 
who is in the ICU, very, very, very sick. And uh, I, I quickly, I went in, I, I asked all the people that I, that I work with over there, prognosis, and lo it was it was horrible. It did not look like he was going to make it. So, you know, when it comes to Bikr Cholim, the Ikar Kiyum of Bikr Cholim is to daven, is to daven by the, by the person who's ill. The Shechina is over his head. It's a great place for tefillah. That's the Ikar Kiyum of um, Bikr Cholim. It's also important, of course, to help them out with physical needs, with psychological needs. But if you look in Yeridea, that's what's highlighted. So we, we decided we were going to daven. When in walks Rav Shechter Shlita and Rav Shai Shechter, both of them, they walk in, and Rav Shechter comes over and he asks me, what's the prognosis? So I thought he was just asking in general terms, what's the prognosis? So I said, I'm, I'm sorry, Rebbe, I, I don't, it doesn't look good. He wasn't satisfied with that answer of Shechter. He said, no, 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 tell me. Tell me the exact prognosis. So I'm like, all right, um, not quite hopping what he's getting at. What's, what, am I, what, is, what does Rosh Shechter want me to say? So I said, Rebbe, I think, I think it's very grim. You know, I didn't want to, you don't like to give bad news. So Rosh Shechter says, no, you're not, you're not understanding me. Can he survive B'der HaTeva? That's what Rosh Shechter wanted to know. Can he make it through natural means, through medical intervention? So, uh, you know, that's a very hard call to make altogether, right? I said, the doctors have, have nothing left to do. So, he, so Rosh Shechter said, okay, so I'm not davening. So I was a little taken aback. I was getting ready to really daven. And Rosh was saying not to daven. And he told me the story of Yecheska Levenstein from Panovich, who did the same thing. There was a student in Panovich who was very ill, not daven. Okay, so I'm just like left looking at Rabbi Beitler. Rabbi Beitler's looking at me. We're like, whoa, did that just happen? We're a little taken aback by this halacha lamaisa application to this boy. So the story really gets good because Rabbi Beitler went back to Passaic and he asked the Rav of Yishul, Rav Yonason Sachs, can I just tell you what happened? He tells him the story. That night I get a call from Rabbi Sachs. He calls me up and he says, is it true? Did Rav Shechter really say that? And I, I go, yeah. He says, well, I was, just on the, I was just on the phone with Rav Asher Weiss and he said the exact opposite. What's going on? So I go, Rebbe, you're asking me what's going on? This is a machlok is between Rav Shechter and Rav Asher Weiss, and you, are asking, Rav, Rav Sachs, are asking me what's going on. I said, I have no idea what's going on. Maybe you could tell me? And I, I um, ultimately said, I need to understand this machlok. This is very, very, very significant. I, I encountered these kind of situations, unfortunately, for better or usually worse. And I want to know, is Rav Shechter's mom is telling me not to daven, and Rav Asherai says to. What could they possibly be arguing about? So, this was what generated my very significant interest in this entire sugya. So now, let's take a look at the Gemara on Tambrachos on Daf Samech over here. Because this is really where the source, you know, whenever you want to get at, at a machlokas, right, this is Ian, right? 
You learn Bikiris, which is a sort of superficial understanding of Gemaras, but all, all the wealth is in the Ian, in my opinion. I assume it makes a difference in terms of what you're dominating for. Yeah, I mean, you could, this was, the, the assumption was davening for recovery. Davening for recovery. Well, that's equivalent We're not, to asking for a nice, based on what you said. All right, so it could be, I was once at a, uh, uh, a Pesach program with the Revari Libuts, and somehow we got into the discussion, I forgot exactly how we got into the discussion of this issue, and he told me, he said, no, Rav Shechter defines, Rav Shechter defines um, that I won't daven as soon as they say what I said. As soon as the doctor says, there's nothing more we can do. There's nothing more we can do. Right? We can't help him anymore. So then, that's considered anything that will result in a recovery will be the malaminateva. And at that point, you know, then, no, no davening. But I, I'm not... I, I understand it, but I don't understand it. And what made it even more complicated for me was Rav Asher Weiss. So what is, he, he disagrees. What, where, where's, where's the machlokist? There's going to be some subtle but significant point at the, at the center of their argument. So now, this is all speculation, what I'm saying right now. I, didn't, I could have just asked that, but uh, I, I decided to go into the sugya, which is uh, more fun to some degree. <coughs> That's right. So, so, is, so is it on thinking of someone else on this situation, or Roshetta would hold this across the board? For any situation like this, I think that's that's where he would hold it. He would say, again, what Rav Arya Leibowitz told me, based on, you know, he's a, a Talmud Mufak of Rav Shechter, so he told me that the critical factor, the defining fa- feature was, the way I said it before, was the doctors feel there's nothing more they can do, he, he's heading downhill, you know, then there might be call for other tefillos, Tfilos that it shouldn't be painful, tfilos that, you know, Ratzon Hashem should be done, Vahule. There's all sorts of tfilos that come lo aleinu at that, that kind of situation. But not for recovery. That's the key. Not for recovery because you're asking for Hashem to operate, Lamalam in Now, on a simple plane, getting back to our old Bitachon topic, a maximalist in Bitachon, I would think, would say, hey, you know, Davin for Anais. You have to be talking. You can't ever have yeosh. You can't give up. You have to be talking that it'll be okay. That would be hypothetically what the maximalist would say. And then the other side might not. Might not. But that's too simple. Let's look at the sugya and see if we can discover what's at the, the center, what's the yisod of this machlokas. What's the foundation. So the Gemara is very well known. I'm going to take it outside. Um, in the interest of time. So the Gemara says that the, the Mishnah had said already that there are certain things we don't daven for because if we do, it's called a tefillah shav. Your, your wife is already pregnant. So to be mispalil now that she should have a, a boy, that's called a tefillah shav. So this, that's the, the Mishnah on Daf Nundalim. Then the Gemara over here on Daf Samech 
gets into it a little. He says, really? Is that true? Is it true that uh, I, can't, I can't make such a, uh, such a tefillah to change and go operate above the Malamina Teva, to go above nature? What about Leah? Everyone knows the very famous story of Leah, right? Leah made a calculation. There's already ten children born. She had six. The Shvachos had four, two each. She knew how many boys were going to be destined to be born, and the total number of children was going to be twelve. She was pregnant. If it's a boy, that's it. Poor Rachel's going to lose out. So she was mispalel that the boy within her should become a girl, right? So, and that's what happened. That's what the Gemara says. So we see clearly, Leah was mispalel for something that's no, no jokes about contemporary times, but the, that doesn't happen other than Lamala Minoteva, right? To have an Ubar inside the womb flip from a male to a female, that is, and, and out comes Dina, that is Lamala, obviously, that's Lamala Minoteva. So, how could you tell me that I'm not allowed to daven for things to occur that are above and beyond and are Mamish Anais? So, the Gemara gives two answers. The first answer is, Right over here is Ein Maskirin Masanisim. What does that mean? It means that you can't bring a proof from somebody basically like Leah, a very special person. A great person like Leah is exceptional. So the truth is, according to this response, you can daven for a miracle if you're like Leah. If you, have, uh, if you are um, as, as great a person as Leah, so then will let you daven for a miracle. But you can fundamentally. Then the Gemara gives a different answer. And the Gemara says, Iba Yisema, Maisa Deleya Besoch Arbayim Yom What page are you on? First page. So what does that second answer say? The second answer says like this. It says, no, that... We weren't davening for a miracle here at all. Leah was not davening for a miracle. It was within 40 days. And to the understanding of Chazal, within 40 days, gender is not yet determined. Gender is determined at 40 days. So she was totally working within Hateva, right? And therefore, not a problem, right? This answer, already we have a big machlokis, uh, if you go beneath the surface of the superficial machlokis, right? The superficial machlokis is, you know, this answer and that answer. But underneath it, one view says it's okay, as long as you meet the standard of Leah, it's okay to, to daven for a miracle. And the other answer says, no, you cannot daven for a miracle, even if you're Leah. Nobody can daven for a miracle. So why was Leah able to do it? Because she wasn't davening for a miracle. All she was doing was working within the Teva. Now, I'd love to get into the idea of, we all know that gender is determined prior to 40 days, and how that works out. So maybe if there's time at the end, I looked into that a little, and had a little debate with Rabbi Slifkin uh, over this issue. But we'll, I'll hold it off. I'll hold it off. It's enticing to get into it. Right? Say it again? Right, so that, that seems to make this difficult, this answer, but um, it could be that even, it's, in, it's indeterminate, the gender, and it was going to be a ben, and then it was determined that it would be a bas. But she's still, it's still within the teva, as opposed to it's already determined, 
And then it's Lamal Aminatam. And then there's a third shita. The third shita is from this Medrash Tanchuma on the bottom. The Medrash Tanchuma says something very, very much uh, against the basic terats in Brachos. Over there, Rav Huna B'Shem Rav Yossi argues on this Gemara to some degree and says, we know that Chazal say somewhere else that you're not supposed to daven that your baby who's already been determined as to what it's going to be, be a boy. But, Ze'eno Ken, this Gemara says, the Tanchuma says. It's not true. You can. How far can you do it? Up until she is Yosheves Al Hamishpar. What does that mean? Up until delivery. Up basically up until the ultimate uh, delivery. You could still dive in that field. So this view is unbelievable. This view says what? This view says you can always dive in for a miracle. It's not a problem. One question. If you can dive in for a miracle, why stop there? Why can't I do it after she's Al Hamishpar? <laughs> What's the difference? What about after he's born? Yeah. yeah what? Anyone have an answer to that question? Right? You hear what, you hear what this last few is saying? It's saying, even though we admit gender was determined, let's say at conception, let's say at 40 days, say whatever you want, but the whole pregnancy now, at some point it's determined. And you're allowed to dive in that whole way through, a miracle, change it to a boy. But once she's Yosheves Alamishpa at the very end, right, at delivery time itself, no. What's this view seem to be saying? What it seems to be saying is that it's okay to daven for a nace as long as it's not begiloi, as long as it's not manifest, as long as we don't see it with our own eyes. We can't have uh, a davening for a miracle and then God perform it right in front of our eyes, in the open. As long as it's hidden in there, we don't know what's going on in there. We don't know during those nine months. Even though it is, it is a miracle possibly, but we don't know that. And as long as it's beseser, it's samoy mina'ayin is the expression that's used in the Gemara, as long as it's hidden from us, then it's okay. So here's going to be a very critical question. What, what's the rationale for that? Why does that matter? Why is it okay to daven for a miracle, right? As long as we don't know about it. What could it be? So here's really going to be a very, very critical uh, point made by Rav Dessler. And Rav Dessler answers this. It's, it's on the next page, but we're running out of time, so I've got to really take it all outside now. Rav Dessler says like this. Rav Dessler says, we're making a big fundamental mistake in our whole understanding of reality. We say there's something called Teva and something called Nes. And that things work naturally or miraculously. And, and that's a fundamental error in thinking. That's not how life is. Says Rav Dessler, everything's the same. There's no real Teva and there's no real miracle. Everything is Ratzon Hashem. Whatever Hashem, the Ratzono, Kiviyachol, wants to happen, it's going to happen. And why, why do we call something derech as opposed to a miracle? Whatever we're used to, whatever we can explain, whatever follows the laws of physics that we foolishly think are real independent laws, that we call teva. But if it's something that's beyond our understanding, beyond our explanation, something we're not comfortable with, that's a miracle. That 
starts off an incredible philosophical approach of Rav Dessler. And he says, that's the explanation. He says, a proof for his shita is this sugya we're talking about. He says, that's why it matters whether God's making the uh, miracle happen openly in front of us, versus whether the miracle happens without us knowing it's happening, in, behind the scenes. Why is that? Because the, the question Rav Dessler says, why did God make the world the way Rav Dessler describes it? Why did Hashem create life to work that we think it's teva, we think it's physical, we think it's understandable and explainable, and differentiate that from that other miraculous realm? Right? Why did Hashem make it that way if it's really not true? It's an illusion. That's the expressions that Rav Dessler uses. The fact that we think there's uh, laws of gravity, there's laws of acceleration, there's laws of all the physical properties, chemical properties, biological properties of life, we think these are all like very understandable things, but we should realize it's all an illusion. It's all just Hashem making those things happen all the time. The same way He makes the miracles happen, He makes natural things happen too. And... For some reason, we are meant to not understand that. We are, have to understand that this is natural, it perceive it as natural. So says Rav Dessler, there's a reason. Number one, to guarantee Bechira. He says, in order for us to have Bechira, we have to be living in a world that we can explain devoid of that miracle, devoid of Ratzon Hashem, where it's got its own independent uh, uh, mode of, of reality. Things work naturally. So that gives me a position now I could choose. Am I going to go for that Gashmis? Am I going to fall for it? Or am I going to go for the Ruchnius? And says Rav Dessler, uh, in addition, and this is going to be very important next week, he's going to say that it's also to give us a sense of the fact that what we can have Bechira over, which is the only thing we really have Bechira for is choosing good and choosing bad. Anything we accomplish in the material world is illusionary. It's, we think we're doing it. We're not doing anything. Uh, a cardiac, I love to use this example because I always... A cardiothoracic surgeon is like going to pre-med four years, four years of medical school, five years of general surgical residency. Then he does uh, cardiothoracic extra time. He's like 15 years of education to get to do these unbelievable surgeries. And I just have to tell him, you're not really doing anything. You've accomplished nothing. Unbelievable. But says Rav Dessler, that's really the truth. And therefore, he has an explanation for this shita. This is very different, right? So he fits well with the Tanchuma. He fits well with the idea that I am fundamentally, according to Rav Dessler, of course I'm allowed to pray for miracles. Everything's a miracle. Everything's a miracle. So of course I'm allowed to daven for miracles to occur. But I'm just not allowed to do it in the open. Whereas the other shita from the Gemara and Brachos totally disagrees. The other shita says, no, you're not allowed to pray for miracles, period. Leah's not allowed to pray for miracles. Open, closed, hidden. There's no praying for miracles. This, to me, ultimately was Machlokes, Rav Shechter and Rav Asher Weiss. Rav Asher Weiss, and we could, confer, we could just ask him, right? I, I've never had the guts, but I said I don't want to ruin this pshat, because I like the pshat. But to me, what Rav, Rav Asher Weiss is saying like this, he's saying, look, you know, 
when, the, when Chazal tell me I'm not allowed to pray for miracles, so it means gluyim, gluyim. In the case of where somebody's ill, lo alenu, and they get better, I can guarantee you if that boy, unfortunately he didn't, but if that boy had gotten better and survived, all my colleagues in the hospital would have been taking full credit. We did it, we're amazing, right? You don't know. You, don't, you can't ever say, oh, this was definitely miraculous recovery. No, this was like related to what we did with ECMO and this, that, and the other thing. No, we don't know. So, under those conditions, of course, Davin says, says Rav Asherwais. Whereas Rav Shechter is holding like that other shita. Rav Shechter is saying, no, no, no. If it's Lamalim in a tever, it's Aser. So, this Rav Shechter shita and this understanding is really the whole thing I wanted to talk about tonight. How much time do we have? So, my whole share i got to do now in five minutes. So I'm going to do it. Okay. No, 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 no. It's okay, it's okay. Ready? So I wanted to understand what always bothered me, what really bothered me at its core. What's wrong with davening for a miracle? What's wrong with that? Why is that? You know, people look at me like I'm crazy. It's like I, like I didn't understand why bitachon is a laudatory thing. Right? I just get bothered by these things. So one of the things that bothers me is the fundamental issue here. What's wrong with davening for a miracle? Right? I mean, I don't want to copy the Christians or the Muslims, but it's okay by them. You know? Lahabdil. <laughs> but, but, but what's the issue? So I, I want to make a suggestion. Uh, okay, I thought about this long and hard. And then I, I, I connected it to something Rav Salavechik really emphasized that I think is uh, a, a possible, tenable explanation why we don't daven for miracles. Why other, you know, di- very different than Rav Dessler. And Rav Soloveitchik and Rav Dessler are going to have a big argument next week. So I, I thought I'd get the, the ball rolling today. Rav Soloveitchik was very famous for many things. And amongst them was he looked at mitzvos in two, two categories, two typologies of mitzvos. There are two types of mitzvos. The majority of mitzvos work very straightforward. The pu'ula, the asiya, is the kiyom. When you do the mitzvah, you're mekayim the mitzvah. Right? Mida'agvi be'i nafik be'i. I've dalid minim. I take a lulav. What's the mitzvah? What's the key of mitzvah of taking a lulav? Taking the lulav. I pick it up. That's it. I'm mekayim the mitzvah at the same time. I light a menorah. Hadlako se mitzvah. If I hold from that shita, then lighting a menorah. Most mitzvahs operate that way. But, says Rav Salavechik, there's a whole other category of mitzvahs. That's a mitzvah where the kiyom is separate from the pu'ula. Right? The way the mitzvah is done is one thing. The kiyom requires something inside. So the classic examples of this are simcha on yomtiv, for example. Simcha on yomtiv, there are many ways the various Rishonim and Achronim tell us to be makayim the mitzvah of simcha on yomtiv. Basar bayayin is classic, right? Rambam, right? Or buy, buy nice things for the family, right? These are all pa'ulos to lead to simcha. So if it's anything like in my house, Every, for years, I tried to, to do this with my wife. I would get her something, but she was never really happy with what I got. No kiyom. It's a kiyom shabalev. It's a kiyom shabalev. It's got to be felt. That's how you makayim simchas yontiv. The pula doesn't do it. Another example at the other extreme is avelos lo aleinu. Avelos has many nihuge avelos. Yeshiva gabi akarka, sitting on the ground, no shoes, right? All the things we do. None of that is makayim the mitzvah of avelos. It's a kim shabalev. You have to feel the loss. Hey, these are very, very different types of mitzvahs. Says Rav Salvechik, the classic, most 
paradigmatic type of mitzvah in the second category is tefillah. Tefillah, prayer. Prayer is a classic avodah shabalev. Right? That's what it's called. Tefillah is the classic avodah shabalev. What does that mean? It means that we have many things we do to perform the avodah of tefillah, to do the actions of tefillah. Right? We, we dive in from a sitter. Right? We'll say words. We'll, we'll do all sorts of things. If we're Hasidish, we do, you know, they have the monopoly on this, right? They, they do all sorts of things to get their tefillah going. But that's not the kiyam. What is the kiyam of tefillah? Says Rabbi Salavechik. The kiyam of tefillah is an incredible intellectual, psychological, emotional awareness of Amida Lifnei HaMakam. That's what you need to do. Right? It's not so simple. You have to actually experience when you're davening. It's a, it's a deraisa, according to the Rambam. The kiyum is, if you get yourself to the point, and by the way, it, it really can simplify tefillah too, for those that like short davenings, right? The ultimate kiyum is just that awareness. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I have to give a, a story just to illustrate this, even though we're going to run out of time. So we'll pick it up next week from here a little bit because uh, we didn't really get to the answer, but Stolel. Who's familiar with Stolel? Who remembers the Stolel, right? So there was in the Stokar family, right? So they, they had a Kolel in their house, but it was like a, a little different type of Kolel. It wasn't your average Kolel. I think Moshe Tzvi and Judah Mishal, they all started there, and they had this great group of guys, and it was like uh, Hasidish bent to it. It's a very interesting place. So I, being the concerned father and thinking I was going to have the greatest didactic moment of fatherhood, I decided to take my children, ages, I don't know what they were then, you know, like 9 to 14. You'll see why it matters. I'm going to give them the experience of going to the Stolel and see davening. And, and, and you see that the pa'ula of davening comes in many flavors. Right? They're used to boring Abba. I'm like a boring... My davening is very straightforward. You know, I'm thinking. I'm doing it in that milieu. You go to Stolel, and you see all sorts of flapping and all sorts of things going on over there. They were doing tremendous things. So I figured this is great for them to see. They'll appreciate that. They can achieve the kiyum of Amid Alifnei Amakom through that. Right? They could try that. So, of course, it backfired tremendously because when they went there... You know, I was impressed. These guys were really into it. My kids just thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever seen. And, oh, look, over there, there's the, there's the bat. There's the cat. There's the, you know, they started, like, really embarrassing me completely. But the point is still there. The point is that tefillah is something where the, the kiyom is just to have that awareness and to achieve it. It's now 10 o'clock. So I can leave you with a cliffhanger. Please, or you can continue. Or I can continue. You can't dive in the 10 o'clock minute anyway. It's too late. Yeah? So we're diving here. We have 10 people. We're diving in 15 minutes. Here. All right. Is that all right with everyone? Anyone who needs to leave, please, please don't, don't have any hesitation. Please. <laughs> so, follow and nobody leaves. Right. So it's interesting. Rav Soloveitchik, when he's talking about this idea that to be Mekayim, the mitzvah of tefillah, 
you need to just achieve this connection with Hashem. Feeling that you're really with Him, feeling that He's in front of you, feeling of the chibur, feeling this connection. That's all it is. That's the whole key of tefillah. Get there any way that works for you. You want to come and prepare for an hour ahead of time. You want to do all sorts of motions. You want to sing. Whatever works. That's what you should do. Okay, fine. Now, says the Rav, this is something that needs to be done here. It needs to be done it needs to be done something that is not otherworldly. It can't be that we're, we're asking for miracles. It's not the place. It has, to be the, it has to be something that is accessible here. Now it's very interesting. If you look on page 4, there is Der Hashem. The Ramchal says something very similar to the Rav in terms of Tzvila is about the connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But he says the opposite. It's, it's Mamish Hafuch on this second point. Whereas the Rav was focused on, in order for Tefillah to be operative and to be working, it's got to be here in this finite world, not in the world of miracles, says the Ramchal, the exact opposite. He says, Tefillah is ultimately, the Kiyam is in this connection, but it's an opportunity for us to escape this world. I found that very fascinating. They have the same ultimate goal, but they're going in different directions. For the Ramchal, we're going up to Shamayim, for the Rav, and it's not so surprising if you've read any, a lot of the things the Rav writes, Shamayim comes down and greets us over here. So that was a the right, exactly, so it fits in more. Now, the other thing is, um, just to illustrate my own experience, I thought I really understood what the Rav was talking about from an experience I had when I was 10 years old. So I was on a school bus with my younger brother, who was 7 at the time, and uh, is in the days they didn't have those stop signs that come out of a bus, and, pe- and there was no real law about people passing a bus. So we used to have a contest who would get to the who would get to the house first and get the New York Post, get the sports section, and get there first. So that day he beat me, and he's looking back at me, my my younger brother, and smiles because he beat me. Right at that moment, this person driving at like 60 miles an hour, passed the bus and slammed into him. And he went flying, and I was, I was certain it was over. And he, he was lying on the floor. And I was frozen. I'm 10 years old, and you know, the image is right now in my head. And, and he's lying there on the floor, and he just got hit by a car, and I can't believe this. I got to get help, and I can't speak. And then I remembered my grandfather had done one thing to instill a tefillah thought in my mind, every night he would say Kriya Shema with me. Every night. So the only tefillah I knew, right, at, at that point in my life, was Kriya Shema. So I started saying Shema Yisrael over 100,000 times. I don't know how many times. Over and over and over again. And that was nothing. But it put me in connection. It gave me the comfort of okay, at least I have God. Right? And through that connection and being able to do it, it kind of got me out of my freeze. Now, okay, so I'm a 10-year-old kid. What's that story worth? Not much. But it's, I really believe I experienced something that the Rav describes, and this is what we'll end with on the last page. Here's the Rav really getting home his point as to exactly what Sila is about and even uh, uh, explaining why there's no place for davening for miracles. It's not about davening for miracles. It's not even about counting on results from the tefillah. The absolute focus of tefillah is something else. Says the Rav, 
With the arrival of the dark night of the soul in moments of agony and black despair, when living becomes ugly and absurd, plainly nauseating, when man loses his sense of beauty and majesty, Hashem addresses him. Not from infinity, not through miracles, but from the infinitesimal. Not from the vast stretches of the universe, right, like the Ramchal would say, but from a single spot in the darkness which surrounds suffering man, from within the black despair itself. Eleven years ago, my wife lay on her deathbed. I watched her dying day by day, hour by hour. Medically, I could do very little for her. All I could do was daven. However, I couldn't daven in the hospital over there. I'm going to skip a little ahead. However, the need for prayer was great. I would not live without grat- I could not live without gratifying this need. He ran home, he rushed to his room, he fell on his knees and he prayed fervently. Hashem in those moments appeared not as an exalted, majestic king, and I'll throw in miracle worker, but rather as a humble, close friend, a brother, a father. In such moments of black despair, he was not far from me. He was right there in the room. I felt his warm hand, so to speak, on my shoulder. I hugged his knees, so to speak. He was with me in the narrow confines of a small room, taking up no space at all. Hashem's abiding in a fenced-in finite locus manifests His humility and love for man. In such moments, humilitous day, which resides in the humblest and tiniest of places, addresses itself to man. Says the Rav, that's what tefillah is about. Tefillah is not about an escape into some other miraculous, supernal world. It's dafka here and now. It's dafka here it's dafka meant to be something that's operating in a world that we could relate to, that we could understand and see HaGadosh Baruch Hu as somebody who's comforting us. That's the main objective of tefillah. That's the main objective of acquiring this ability to really honestly feel you're in the presence of HaGadosh Baruch Hu. Whether you get tefillahs answered or not, you know that Hashem's making uh, decisions for the universe. There's so many other factors that are coming into play. That's why you can never have a guarantee that anything's going to come out just the way you want it. You never know what it's impacting someone else or all the calculations that Hashem's making. But the minimal, the minimal, and the ultimate objective of tefillah is to be able to make this chibur, this connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in this world, here, on our terms, in, in terms that we can understand and bring to action. So he was... Thank you very much. So, he, so he's disagreeing with No, I think Rav Shachter fits right in. He says he's watching his wife dying and he's davening. Right, so what's he davening for? He's not davening for recovery. He's not saying He wants, what is he saying? Like he's saying he wants Hashem to help him through this. He's davening for himself. That's how I understand that tefillah. He's, he's davening for comfort. He's davening... He doesn't say what he's davening for. That's right. He's not no, but listen, listen to his description and what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. I, couldn't yeah. I couldn't tell either, but you know, that's what he's saying. Right. He's saying he's davening for himself. That's what I understand. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I have the same question. Right, it could be... Right. It could be one where there was still possibility for recovery.